So we're going to be studying uh, 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus. These are three books written by Paul to two individuals, two of the books written to a young man named Timothy and another one to a young man named Titus. And um, I'm going to put the um, overall concept of these two books as uh, to set the church in order. Because that's what we're going to see in these letters that he writes, uh, what he's wanting them to do. The churches, uh, like uh, your favorite video game in the 80s with the little out of order sign on it, churches can get out of order. And what out of order meant when I went to the video arcade and it said out of order, it meant the video game wasn't going to work. If you go to uh, the gumball machine, it says out of order, it means you can stick your quarter in, but the gumball's not coming out. And when something's out of order, it's broke. And what these books are about is setting churches in order. You know, uh, sometimes we say, or you'll hear people say, uh, we want to follow New Testament Christianity. Well, certainly, that's true. That's right. But then I see, I hear modern skeptics and scoffers today uh, balk at that idea and say, uh, which New Testament church? Corinth, it had all these problems. Or, or Ephesus, it had all these problems. Or Philippi, it had all these problems. Which New Testament church are you wanting us to follow? Well, uh, yes, all those churches did have problems, and he wrote books to correct them because they were out of order. And what it means to follow the New Testament church is the one described and prescribed in the documents of the New Testament that are correcting out-of-order churches. And so what I'm saying here is no church is perfect, and we all have, um, no one has an ideal church. Every church needs leaders because every church has things that are out of order. It's like a doctor would be out of business if everybody was completely healed. Mechanics wouldn't have any work if cars never broke down. And preachers and elders and deacons would be out of work if everybody at church did what they were supposed to. When it talks about following after the New Testament church, it means the ideal of the doctrine and the practices that's taught in the New Testament what the church is supposed to be. That's what we're aiming for. You say, well, we'll never be perfect. Well, that's true, but it's better to aim at the stars and hit a deer than aim at a deer and hit the dirt. And we need to shoot for, as Paul says, aim for perfection. Now, we know we're never going to be perfect, but we need to try to be the best that we can be for Christ. And these books are about setting the church in order. To show you what I mean, look at Titus 1.5. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what is left unfinished and ordain elders in every town as I directed you. The churches on the island of Crete were out of order. There was some stuff that was unfinished. Now, some of it was good. Some of it, evidently, Paul himself had been there doing. But there was unfinished work. And at every church, at Liberty Christian Church, at at Versailles, you know, wherever you go, Kent Christian, wherever you're from, there's unfinished work at your church. There's things that need be- improved. There's things that need uh, honed. There's things that need led. There's things that need to be improved upon. And there's no church that doesn't need to improve. And if you are stagnant, you're dying. And every church needs leaders because every church needs continually ordered The way of this world is everything tends towards chaos and disorder. If you leave your car alone and don't ever do maintenance, it will become out of order. If you don't do any home maintenance in your house, pretty soon your house will be out of order. 
You even got to brush your hair in the morning or it's out of order. You've got to take care of stuff. And that's what these books are about. These books are personal letters, instruction manuals from an inspired apostle to two young evangelists about how to put things in order that were left unfinished. Look what he says to Timothy. What you heard from me, keep as the pattern of sound teaching. So when they say, what New Testament church? The one that Paul proclaims. The ideal that Paul lays out in the New Testament. The one that follows after the pattern of sound teaching. That church. That's the church that we need to emulate. With faith and love in Christ, guard the good deposit that was entrusted to you. Guard it with the help of the Holy Spirit who lives in us. And so we need to guard what's good in a church and set in order what's out of order in a church. And that is the calling of an evangelist. That's what these young preachers were being called to do. Well, what's an evangelist do? Well, that's what we're going to find out. That's what these letters are about. But the point that I want to make is that the church is ordered according to a pattern, to a doctrine. And that's not a popular idea anymore. That was the idea of the Christian churches and the churches of Christ, what some called the the restoration movement. That was the defining concept. Some say it was unity. Yes, but unity based on what? A unity based on getting back to the Bible pattern. They rejected the, the inventions of Catholicism. They rejected the man-made doctrines and uh, creeds and, and institutions of denominationalism. And they said, let's go back to pure New Testament Christianity as taught by the apostles. See, the idea of the Christian church and Church of Christ, where this church came from, however many 200 years ago, 150 years ago, whatever this church was put here, and, and many other churches like it all across this country, was the idea of let's just get back to the Bible. Let's do Bible things, Bible ways, called Bible things by Bible names. Let's just do it the Bible way. They, didn't, they weren't just saying, hey, let's unify and all get along based on nothing. No, they said let's unify on where the Bible clearly speaks about something. That's how we're going to do it. Where the Bible gives, and if the Bible doesn't say anything about it, then okay, you do it your way, I'll do it my way. But where the Bible speaks, we're going to unify on that. In essentials, we're going to have unity. And in matters of opinion, we'll allow for liberty. And in all things, we'll have love. We're going to do it with faith and love in Christ Jesus. That was the concept that's taken from Scripture, and it's a concept that's lost today. It's not being taught in our Bible colleges. And it's certainly not being taught in our churches. In fact, not only is it not being taught, the opposite's being taught. That there is no pattern. Do what you want. Uh, Whatever works, whatever's pragmatic, as long as you love Jesus. And they, they miss out on some doctrine. And so before we even get in to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, I feel uh, that it's important for me to set up with you and lay again the foundation of the concept of why should I follow what Paul tells Timothy? Why is what Paul tells Timothy and Titus here something I should emulate? 
Why is it something I should even do? Why do I not just look at it and say, well, that's what he told Timothy to do, but that was back then. I don't have to follow that. And if you don't think that's how people approach First and Second Timothy, you haven't been paying attention to what modern preachers are saying. They'll go to 2 Timothy chapter 2 and read something about the role of women in the church and say, well, that's for back then. They'll read something about parenting and say, well, that's for back then. They'll read something about husbands and wives and say, well, that's for back then. They don't want to follow it. They'll read about elders and evangelists and job. Well, that doesn't matter. You know, that's for back then. Now we have our leadership set up. And they don't want to follow it. They don't want to hold to the pattern that Paul set forth. They don't want to obey verse 13 and keep the pattern of teaching that Paul, the apostle, and the other apostles passed down to them. They don't want to guard the good deposit entrusted to them. And they certainly don't want to put in order what's unfinished according to New Testament doctrine. That concept has been lost, and it's a tragedy and it's destroying the church, it's ruining evangelism, it's making churches that are a mockery, a a mile wide in size and an inch deep in spiritual depth, that uh, focus on um, Sunday morning entertainment services for the masses rather than discipleship of people and evangelism of the lost. And everything's topsy-turvy because we don't have true biblical church leadership. Now, 150, 200 years ago, there was a direct effort among the people who started this church and others like it to restore the biblical positions. They restored the title of evangelist. They restored the title of elders. They restored the title in the office of deacon. And they tried to get back to it. But the problem is, is along the way, and we'll discuss this as we go through the class, they superimposed upon it American form of government and turned it into a republic or a democracy or something with votes and, and elders and deacons getting together like there's some sort of council and voting on things, which is not the biblical model that we're going to read here. And so they, had, they restored the, the office, they restored the title, but they didn't restore the job description in many cases. And so it didn't work. So what we want to look at is restoring the title, but more than that, more important than and what title we give the leaders in our church, restoring the job description to the appropriate title. Restoring the qualifications that are a must for leaders to be in these positions. These are the things we're going to study that are so important from this book. And if, if, I, could get, if I could get the, church, the Christian churches in the United States to follow this pattern and follow what the New Testament says about church leadership, there would be a radical change in the churches in America for the better. And there would be a distinct uptick in spiritual depth, spiritual growth, and, and most importantly, evangelism. And I would say that the, the biggest thing that's hurting churches in America right now is we are not following the pattern of sound doctrine laid out by the apostles when it comes to church leadership. We're just not. And so that's what we want to discuss. Now, there's a case for a biblical precedent. Biblical precedent, now I didn't say president. I said precedent, as in like legal cases. Well, is there any precedent for precedent? Yes, there is. Um, What does that mean? It means 
that where the Bible lays out a pattern of behavior, we should follow it. Now, here's what I was taught back in, in Bible college, and I'm going to show you from the Scriptures that it's accurate. That where the Bible, where we see the apostles and the early Christians doing something, the same thing everywhere in every church, we should imitate it. And where they did one thing in one town and another thing in another town and another thing in another town, then there's no precedent, there's no pattern, we don't got to follow it. I always explain it like a cookie cutter, right? Let's say you had uh, a cookie cutter and you cut out some cookies. And they're the little snowman kind, okay? So you're cutting out the little snowman and then you give them, the kids get them, the kids get to decorate them. Well, the little girl puts pink frosting around, you know, and, and puts a big smiley face. And then, of course, the obnoxious boy makes his all black with blood coming from the mouth. And, you know, <clears throat> each cookie is decorated different. And um, they're all different. But you can tell they were cut from the same pattern. And we are to follow the pattern and cut the church from the New Testament pattern. Now, how we decorate, it's up to us. There's some things that aren't essential. Doesn't matter whether it's uh, got chocolate frosting or vanilla frosting or whether you, it's got sprinkles or not. What matters is, is it cut from the pattern? And the churches in the New Testament, if there was something that was the same, for example, the very first church met where? Where'd the very first church meet? Solomon's Colonnade, huge, massive auditorium in the temple, held thousands. The very first Sunday, they had 3,000 baptisms. That's a big building. The church grew, the book of Acts says, to 5,000. They had 5,000 members meeting at Solomon's Colonnade. And then it grew to such an innumerable host, they, they couldn't count anymore. They stopped, they stopped trying to count. Conservative estimates from most scholars is, is that before the persecution and the breakup of the church where they had to flee uh, because of the persecution and often to Samaria and stuff, 100,000 members, at least. That's why they had to have seven men just to administrate a benevolence program for widows because they had thousands of widows. That's why it took seven guys to administrate it. It was a big project to feed those widows. So the very first church met in a huge auditorium called the temple. And there they, that's where they worshiped every Sunday. Now, during the week, they'd meet in each other's homes and eat meals together and have fellowship and Bible study and prayer. But on Sunday, they all got together in Solomon's Colonnade. Now, as the church split up, where else did they meet? Where's another place the church met? In synagogues, right? How many times did Paul go to a synagogue, convert the people in the synagogue, and turn the synagogue into a church? That happened a lot. Sometimes the synagogues would kick them out, so where would they meet? They'd meet in somebody's house. Some rich person they had a big house, you know, and <coughs> they had one of those little squares inside of it that hold 100, 150 people. That's where they'd have church. Sometimes they didn't have a house big enough, but they had a larger church. One time Paul rented the lecture hall of Tyrannus. He rented a pagan lecture hall. It's like renting a, a college auditorium. So sometimes they're meeting houses. Now, Paul went and started a church at Philippi. They didn't have a house. They didn't have a lecture hall. They didn't have a big auditorium. They only had a few people, and they just met down by the river outside. So you have outside churches, house churches, rented churches, synagogue where you have a building churches, and 
church in the temple. Is there any pattern to where the church was in the New Testament? No, they met wherever. So, is there any pattern that we need to follow there? No. Now, in the New Testament, it says that they met on the first day of the week to do what? To break bread, to take communion. Now, is that the pattern we see all the way through the New Testament? Is that what we read in church history? Is that what the early church fathers, the first and the second generation of Christians said the apostles did? And is that what they did? Yeah. Is that what Christians did for centuries? Yeah. you got to go all the way up uh, to 1,600 years after the apostles before you find anybody saying you shouldn't take communion every Sunday. And only Sunday. Every Sunday, only Sunday is how communion was for 1,600 years. And that's what we see in the New Testament. So that's a pattern. So should we follow it? Yeah. That's why Christian churches started taking communion every Sunday. Presbyterians didn't. Baptists didn't. Methodists didn't. Nobody else did. Nobody in the Reformation churches took communion every Sunday. Why do Christian churches take it every Sunday? Because they used to operate under the principle, if the apostles and prophets did it, so will we. If the reason they met was to take communion on Sunday, then that's going to be the reason we meet on Sunday. That used to be the logic. That's why Christian churches and churches of Christ take communion every week. Is there any scripture in the Bible that says, thou shalt take communion every Sunday? No, there is not. But there is a command to follow the traditions of the apostles and to imitate what they did and to put into practice what their example. Was that their tradition to take it every Sunday? Yes. So, in order to obey the command to follow their traditions, I take it every Sunday. That's how we come up with our understanding. That's why every church, did every church in the New Testament have elders? No. But were they all trying to get to where they had elders? Yes. And after the church matured, would they install elders? Yes. Would they have deacons? Yes. Would they have an evangelist? Yes. So why should we have an evangelist, elders, and deacons? Because they did in every church. That was their goal. When they planted a church, their goal was, hey, five to ten years from now, we're going to have elders here. And Paul and Silas, they would go back around and visit the churches a decade after they planted them and install elders. Because that was their pattern. That was their behavior. And we'll study that as we go through the book and, and we talk about it. So there's a pattern. There's a case for precedent. Now, how does that work? Why should I obey apostolic precedent? Why should I follow the apostles and prophets? Example, well, look what Jesus said. But the counselor, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. Jesus had been telling him he was going to go away to the Father. And when he left, he said, when I leave, the Holy Spirit's going to come, this counselor. And what's the Holy Spirit going to do for you apostles? He says, I will teach you all things and remind you of everything I've said to you. Now, is that a promise for you? No, because Jesus never said nothing to you. <laughs> you weren't there for his three-year ministry. You weren't there to witness his death, burial, and resurrection. You've only heard about it from these guys. This was a promise just for the 12. The guys that were saying, they were, this is for his apostles. Um, for example, 
Um, some of you, who in here can remember uh, when John F. Kennedy was shot? Okay, you remember where you were? Remember when you heard? I, I don't. I was but a mere twinkle in me father's eye at that point. I wasn't born yet. Okay, how many of you remember when the space shuttle Challenger blew up? Remember where you were? I remember that one. I was in the eighth grade um, and uh, was watching it in study hall. I'm like, I don't think that's supposed to happen. Um, so how many of y'all, how many of y'all remember 9-11? Okay. You know, my daughter Kaylee has no memory of that. Do you know why? She was born in 2004. <laughs> she wasn't even alive. She can't, the Holy Spirit couldn't bring that back to her memory because she didn't experience it. And the Holy Spirit can't bring back to your remembrance everything Jesus said to you because he never said anything to you. He's talking to the apostles. This is a promise for the apostles, not for you, not for me. And look what he says in 16, 13. But when he, the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all truth. He will not speak on his own. He will speak only what he hears and will tell you what's yet to come. That's not a promise for you. That's a promise for the apostles. The apostles were promised that the Holy Spirit would come upon them, that they would be guided in all truth, that, they would, that the Holy Spirit would bring back to remembrance everything Jesus said, and therefore what they taught would be from God. You see, the apostles had a promise and a gift that you don't have. The apostles were inspired by the Holy Spirit, and everything they taught regarding doctrine was from God, and it was inspired. It was, they were perfectly remembering what Jesus said. Everyone to our Matthew, Mark, and Luke are so accurate. Why, they, they tell the story, three different guys, they're written in different places. They weren't even on the same continents anymore. They didn't write Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John when they were in Jerusalem all together. They didn't write it until 20 years later. They, one day they finally said, you know, guys, we might die before Jesus comes back. We ought to write this down. And the very first gospel, the gospel of Mark, was dictated by Peter to Mark in 53, 54 A.D. You guys, Jesus ascended into heaven in 30 A.D. Okay? It, it took them a few years before they wrote it down. So he writes Mark. Luke goes around and interviews everybody, writes Luke. Matthew writes his on his own. And they're, on, they're in three distinct places. Uh, Mark's in, uh, uh, Peter's in Rome when he's at Luke's writing his from Greece. And, and uh, um, Matthew, I think, is in Asia Minor. They're, they're in Asia and Europe. They're in different places. They can't coordinate. And yet, notice how their accounts totally line up and are accurate. In fact, it, it's so similar, modern skeptics say there was another gospel that they all copied from. They call it the Q document. And they've theorized about this. There must be a Q document that we don't know about, which, of course, they have no proof for. The Q document is the Holy Spirit guiding them in all truth. That's why the Bible's accurate. I mean, can you imagine if you had somebody witness a guy's ministry for three years? You take four guys, send them off in different parts of the world, have them write the gospel, and none of it contradicts each other? That's miraculous. That's inspiration of the Holy Spirit. That's what that is because he guides them. Look what it says in 2 Peter. This is what Peter says about it. 
Above all, you must understand, no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. When Paul wrote 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, he wasn't just writing a letter to some guys. He was teaching doctrine, and so he was carried along by the Holy Spirit, teaching from Christ himself. The Holy Spirit was delivering the will and the teachings of Christ to us so we can get the teaching from Jesus. What, what you have in First and Second Timothy and Titus is Scripture. It's inspired. You know, some of your Bibles have our red letter edition, right? And it's got the words of Jesus are in red. Well, truth be told, he said all of it. Because even when Paul speaks, he's speaking by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and of Christ. The Spirit of Christ. It's all red letters. It's all God's Word. It's all from Him. And the Scripture is inspired. So what we're reading is what God wants us to know. And as we'll see in 2 Timothy, uh, it's for our benefit. It's useful to us. We'll talk about that later. So look what it says in Ephesians 2.19. Consequently, you're no longer foreigners and aliens, but fellow citizens with God's people, members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now he's making a foundational analogy here, okay? He said, you're part of the temple. Peter gives this idea too, right? Remember when Peter says that we're like living stones being built together into the house of God, you know? It, uh, all in all, you're just another brick in the wall. You're, you're part of a living stone in the temple of, and what are you built? What are we to be built upon? A foundation. What foundation? The foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. Now, if you don't know how buildings were built in the first century, you wouldn't understand this analogy, but I'm going to explain it to you. Back then, when they wanted to build a building, they would make a cornerstone first. This big, the stone is totally square. It's squared out, even, cut perfectly. And then they place it just where they want it, according to where they lay out the design of where the building's going to go. And after that's laid out, that's squared out, they'll take a plumb line or a rope or whatever, and they'll square it out to the dimensions, and they'll lay out this plumb line that's perfectly straight with the side of the cornerstone. And then they'll get the foundation squared up to the cornerstone. And the way the foundation ends up being square and even is because it's aligned with the cornerstone. And then when you want to build the rest of the house, all you have to do is line it up with the foundation. The foundation is lined up with the cornerstone, so the whole building is lined up to what? The cornerstone. And that's how you keep the house from having straight walls and, and, and not falling over and not being all sideways, look like Pee Wee's Playhouse or something. It's, uh, it's, you've got a, a straight walls and, and a solid building because it's built on a good foundation. And Jesus is that cornerstone. He laid down the cornerstone. Found, he is the foundation. No other foundation can be laid other than him. And he lays down as like the cornerstone. And then the Holy Spirit, like a plumb line, laid out and inspired the apostles to write the 27 books of the New Testament. And the apostles, 
and the prophets whom they laid hands on. The apostles would give this ability to do prophecy and miracles by the laying on of hands. We see that in the book of Acts. And by the laying on of hands, they made certain men prophets. And they wrote down Scripture. So all of your New Testament is written by either an apostle or one of the guys that they laid hands on and made a prophet. One of those two. And then a whole bunch of prophets existed in churches that never wrote any books, but they were just prophets for churches until the New Testament was complete. You see, they had to have the gift of prophecy. There had to be a prophet in every church because nobody had a New Testament. They couldn't go, well, what do we do about prayer? How do we, you know, or whatever. They couldn't do any of that because they didn't have a Bible. It wasn't written yet. So what did the early church do before the New Testament was complete? The apostles, when they go into church, they would lay hands on somebody, give them the gift of prophecy, and they would be able to tell the doctrine. And they would also have some other miraculous abilities to prove that from the Holy Spirit that they were in fact inspired prophets. Maybe they could speak in a language they never learned. Maybe they had the gift of healing. I don't know. They would have these miraculous abilities. But those abilities were signs and wonders for the sole purpose of verification that what they spoke was the truth and that they were a prophet. And once the New Testament was complete, and that first generation, the gospel is delivered, the New Testament's complete, then the gift of prophecy dissipates and leaves. And just like 1 Corinthians 13 says, it says that the prophecy and tongues and, and foreknowledge, the ability to foretell the future, that's all going to pass away while faith, hope, and love continue. Why? Because the New Testament gets delivered and we don't need prophets anymore. Prophets were a stopgap measure in between until the New Testament could be delivered to us. Now that we have the New Testament delivered, we don't need apostles and prophets. So did we need apostles and prophets at the beginning? Yeah, they were the foundation. Do you, do you put the foundation at the, at the top level? No. The foundation is laid first, and then you build the building upon it. You don't keep building foundation. The foundation gets laid and then you build upon it. And the foundation of the apostles and prophets is done away with. That, their work was complete in the first century. And it says it would cease, and it did cease. You know, people are like, well, I'm a prophet today. I'm like, really? Which one of the apostles laid hands on you? How old are you? So the foundation analogy teaches us that the doctrine of the New Testament is from Christ, guided by the Holy Spirit to be like the foundation. And there's a finite source of doctrine. There's not going to be infinite prophets, an infinite foundation. Look what it says. In reading this, then, you'll be able to understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to men in other generations. Well, what generation was it made known in then? That generation, the first century. That's why we say we want to have first century New Testament Christianity. Why? Because that's the generation in which it was delivered. Not made known to men in other generations has now been revealed by the Spirit to God's holy apostles and prophets. Who is it revealed to? All Christians? Does every Christian get the gift of supernatural knowledge or, or prophecy or tongues? No. 
Who was it given to? It was given to the special people, the apostles and prophets, who were the foundational leaders of the church, who established the churches, set up these churches, wrote the New Testament documents, passed them on to the second generation, died out. And that's, it was revealed by the Spirit to the holy apostles and prophets. And when the apostles and prophets ceased to exist, so did the revelation. Well, say, Kendall, but uh, some people teach, well, the apostles were successive, and the cardinals in Rome are the successors of the apostles, and the pope is the successor of Peter, and all that. I'm, well, there's a problem with that. It says in Jude 1.3, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt I had to write and urge you and contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to the saints. It's been given. The mystery has been made known. The gospel has been delivered. The doctrine has been received. The apostles and prophets gave it. It's done. And by the end of the book of Revelation, the last thing Jesus says in the New Testament is, don't add to it. Don't take away from it. If somebody's a prophet today and they're getting words of knowledge from the Lord, why aren't they writing it down? Why, aren't, why don't we have, you know, after Revelation, we got first and second Benny Hens. Huh? Because it's all garbly gook and it's all about him getting money and everybody knows he's a con artist. He's a fake and he's a fraud and it's a sham. And all these fake prophets are. You get, get, go, go search on the internet the prophecies these modern day televangelists make and you'll see dozens of them that they made a prophecy and it didn't come true. Kenneth Copeland when COVID first came out, I prophesy it's going to be a heat wave and it's going to be hot and it's going to, heat kills us COVID and I call down heat from heaven, blah, blah, blah. It's the coldest summer in 30 years. I'm not joking. 2020, look it up. Global warming. Only hot air is coming out of his mouth. And the hot place he wants, he's going there. He'll get there. The... It's all lies. The Bible has been, there's a finite source for doctrine. The apostles and prophets in that generation delivered to us once and for all the good news of Jesus Christ. We've got it. It's written down. It's encapsulated. And the last thing Jesus says is don't add to it. So there aren't any prophets today. First Corinthians, Paul said they'd cease and they did cease. And the purpose of them is, is no longer needed. If they say more than the Bible, they say too much. If they say less than the Bible, they don't say enough. And if they say the same thing as the Bible, what's the point? The Scriptures have been delivered. And that is our source of doctrine. Now, are these Scriptures descriptive or prescriptive? Now, we talked about this a little bit already. How does biblical precedent work? I'm not saying that every little thing that they did in the book of Acts we got to do. For example, in the book of Acts, um, uh, they all took all their money and chipped it into one big pot together. And that did not work. <laughs> uh, in fact, uh, they ended up in poverty and all the churches around in, in Europe and Asia Minor had to take up an offering and send them money because they were broke. And it is not something that continued throughout the rest. That is not a, a, a pattern of behavior in the New Testament church. It was something they did once during an emergency when the widows needed money. Everybody was given and selling their property. They thought Jesus was going to come back any time. They were selling everything and giving it all away. And, but that did not become a pattern of behavior throughout the New Testament that we see. 
So is that something I need to follow? No, because there's not a pattern. Where we see a pattern of behavior or a command for behavior, we need to do it. Where there's no pattern of behavior, we don't. That's how biblical precedent works. So is everything I read in the book of Acts something I should do? No. But where I see a pattern of behavior in the book of Acts, should I imitate that? Yes. Look what it says here in Thessalonians. He called you through our gospel that you might share in the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm, hold to the traditions. Does it say hold to every little thing we did, even if we did it different in different places? No. Hold to our traditions. What's a tradition? It's a thing that you do again and again and again. So where they had a pattern of repeated behavior, a tradition, Now, some translations translate that teachings because it has the idea of doctrine to it, but it's more than just teachings, it's doings. Hold to the pattern of doings, the traditions that we pass on to you, whether by word of mouth or by letter. So they passed on their traditions how? How'd they do it? By word of mouth or by letter. Now, we got their letters, right? We got the epistles, Romans, First, Second Corinthians, Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, Philemon, Hebrews, uh, James, First, Second Peter, First, Second Third John, Jude, Revelation. We got the letters. How do we know what they said by word of mouth? Where where do we see what they did and said? Where do we learn that? The Book of Acts. That's where the Book of Acts is. Paul is saying here: hold to the traditions that are in the epistles and in the Book of Acts. That's where we see what they said. So some people say, well, Acts is descriptive of what they did, but it's not prescriptive. We don't have to do it. I disagree. When I look at the book of Acts and I see a pattern of behavior, I need to imitate that. Because Paul says whether they just said it or whether they wrote it, I'm to imitate it. I'm to hold to their uh, traditions. So the book of Acts is prescriptive where it establishes a pattern of behavior. I'm going to say that again. The book of Acts and the New Testament is prescriptive where we see a consistent pattern of behavior. Where it was a one-off thing, where they did one thing in one place and one thing in another, there's no tradition. Therefore, I don't have to imitate it. Does that make sense? It makes perfect sense to me. That's what I was taught in Bible college. And I'm sorry to say some of my professors that taught that to me abandoned it. But that's what made the Christian church and the church of Christ and why they were so powerful in the 19th and the early 20th century were turning this country and the rest of the world upside down. It's why it was the fastest growing religious movement in the world. It's why it ate up and swallowed up denominationalism and did more against denominationalism than anything else I've ever seen. And it's why conversions were growing, and it's why Bible colleges were started, camps were started, churches were started, missionaries by the droves were sent out, especially after World War II. A flood of uh, World War II vets uh, motivated to do something for Christ after the war went back to Japan and, and to different places they've been and fought in the war and tried to convert the people that had tried to kill them. And they went to South America and they went to Africa and they went to Asia and Europe and into the communist nations, risking their lives through the 60s and the 70s. 
uh, graduates of my alma mater, Cincinnati, uh, died in Africa, in, in, uh, in Europe, in East Germany, gave their lives taking the gospel. Why? Because they realized they needed to hold to the traditions of the apostles and pass it on. Whether word of mouth, and it, it was a different world. It was a different motivation in the church. Because there were men who were leaders who wanted to do Bible things the Bible way, called Bible things by Bible names. They took it serious. It wasn't just spouting about how God's gracious and loving and singing some fun songs of the light show on Sunday. It was about winning souls for Christ and changing the morality and the attitudes of people. It was about eternal salvation. It was about a transformation and discipleship and sacrifice and, and humble service. Why? Because they wanted to follow the example of the apostles. That's why. Because they saw that it was prescriptive, not just descriptive. Second Timothy, what you heard from me keep is the pattern of sound teaching with faith and love in Christ Jesus. See, in, in these books, 1, 2 Timothy and Titus, this idea is taught. There'll be more about the importance of the Scripture and the value of the Scripture from Timothy as well. But I just want to point out that in this book, Paul lays it out. Look, Timothy, buddy, my young Padawan, what you heard from me, what you've seen me do, my traditions, the pattern of doctrine that I gave you, son. Take it and pass it on. Does that sound like it's not prescriptive? Or does that sound like it's prescriptive? With faith and love in Christ. Look at Philippians. Join with others in following my example, brothers. Take note of those who live according to the pattern we gave you. There's a pattern. And you ought to be able to look at a church. Now, the church might have one kind of building or another. They might have one kind of music or another. They might have, you know, what, one style of worship or another. That's not prescribed. But they ought to have elders, and they ought to have an evangelist, and they ought to have deacons, and they ought to be taking the Lord's Supper, and they ought to get the plan of salvation right, and they ought to be evangelistic, and they ought to be feeding the poor, and they ought to be taking care of the widows. They ought to be, there's some things that are universal in the church that every church should have. And Paul's going to lay it out for Titus and Timothy here. He's going to lay it out. He's going to talk about benevolence. He's going to talk about evangelism. He's going to talk about church leaders. He's going to talk about getting rid of false teachers. He's going to talk about orderly worship. He's going to talk about priorities in worship and what, what they should be paying attention to in the worship service. He's going to get right down to how people dress. He's going to get down to how people treat their spouses. He's going to get up all in their business because there's some things that should be cookie cutter. Every church has it. It's the same in every church. There's some things that culturally are different. The kind of music that we're going to have here in the United States is going to be different than Africa. And the kind of music that you have down here in southern Indiana is going to be different than what they have in downtown Indianapolis. Different cultures, different people. But what should be the same is the pattern of doctrine, the essentials, 
should be same from church to church to church. And it's the job of the leaders to set what's out of order in order in regard to those things. Whose job is it? Guy number one, evangelist. That's who. It's on us. That's our job. Is to set those things in order and to hold to the pattern. It's like a puzzle. Now, over, I don't like puzzles. I'm not a big puzzle guy. Uh, I just, I don't know, I get bored with puzzles. But over the uh, Christmas break, um, my fiance Annie, her, her son loves puzzles. So we did a puzzle. Um, and we're working on the puzzles. And I'm operating on the basis that all the pieces are there. <laughs> okay? Assumption number one. Assumption number two, they go together. And that it's going to form some sort of picture. So what do I do? The very first thing. I find all the flat sides. And I build a little frame, right? And then I cheat. I get the picture of, and set it up. And I start looking at colors on the pieces. And I start putting in a reasonable proximity of where they're going. And there's some eyes on that owl. Okay, uh, that looks like an eye. I start putting eyeballs together for the owl. And I start putting those pieces, and no time, and he's putting pieces, and I'm like, here, you do the sunset over there, I'll do the, and we divide it up, and we put the pieces together. And the Bible says that God is a God of order, not disorder, right? Does it make sense that God would create a kingdom and his church, and he wouldn't set up leaders? That he wouldn't have any structure for his church? That he wouldn't have any basics of leadership positions or their job descriptions? Do you really think that God created job titles without job descriptions? What kind of boss do you think he is? What kind of king do you think we got? What kind of kingdom do you think he's running? Look, I operated on the idea that if I started putting things together, the pieces would fall together and create a beautiful picture. And it did. And I do the same thing with the Scripture. I operate on the presumption that if I study it, even if I don't understand it at first and it seems like a confusing mess, that if I keep working on it and studying it, it's going to come together and create something beautiful. And that's not a foolish assumption on my part, nor should it be on yours. It's not a ridiculous thing to think that God prescribed and laid out and ordered way church leadership should run and the way the church itself should be ordered, and that it's somebody's job to be in charge of ordering it. That's not a crazy idea. In fact, we're going to see in 1st 2nd Timothy and Titus, that's a very biblical idea. And so as we go through this book, we're going to get the job description for a preacher. And what's cool about this is by the time we're done, you'll have a little outline of it. And when you go hire a preacher sometime in the future, you can go, okay, buddy, here, you're going to need to do this and this and this and this. Can you do these things? And you hire based on whether he can do that job description. And if he stinks at all that stuff, for crying out loud, don't hire him. And it's a valuation uh, for a preacher to look at himself and say, am I doing what the Bible says I should be doing. It's an ev and elders are going to be able to evaluate off this. You'll be able to look and say, am I, doing, am, I, am I doing things the right way? 
as an elder of the church, as the shepherd of God's people? Am I shepherding appropriately? Because it's going to deal with these things. And we're going to see a hierarchy. We're going to see um, uh, checks and balances. We're going to see leadership structure in these books. You're going to get that. God didn't leave that out of the puzzle. And you're like, well, how do I put it all together? Well, you start with the flat sides. Start with what you know. And then, if I can give you an overview of this, maybe you can get the big picture, right? Kind of like me cheating with the cover on the box. And you could start going, okay, let's put the eyeballs there and let's put the sunset over here. And Oh, look at that, that's nice. And things start coming together. And that's what we're going to try to do over the next 15, 16 weeks together. Is we're going to try to set up from these books how God wants to set His church in order. Let's take a, a break, and we'll come back, and we'll, we'll kick into it. Okay, so we are going to uh, maybe even get into a little bit of First Timothy tonight here, uh, but I want to start off with um, a few things ab about the book first. Um, I always, I always struggle because a lot of uh, people, and like the notes and the books that I read, they spend an excessive amount of time um, proving that Paul wrote it and Timothy received it and all that. Um, I'm not going to spend a bunch of time defending the fact that the Apostle Paul wrote these three letters, uh, because if you don't believe that at this point, you're not going to listen to anything else I have to say in the class anyway. And, uh, and really proving who wrote what book and how we know that the Bible is the Bible and the canon and all that, that's really a class unto itself. And um, if you're debating that in your mind and you don't know, you don't know enough about the Bible to know, how do I know that Paul wrote 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy? Um, you know, well, then you need to study up on that. You need to get the canon by F.F. F. Bruce and read it uh, or something like that to help you know uh, that the, the New Testament that we receive today is reliable and it's actually what the apostles wrote and how we know uh, it was handed down. Um, so I'm not going to, I'll go through some of the objections here in a minute and, and, and give a cursory overview of how we know uh, Paul wrote the book, but I'm not going to spend a bunch of time on it. I went through my dad's notes and he normally doesn't spend a lot of time on that stuff, but for whatever reason he did here, I'm not sure why. Uh, I'm just not going to do that because I want to get into the meat of the book and get through the book. And I'm at the end of the semester rushing through important material because I wasted too much time at the beginning. If I run out of material at the end, I'll go back and prove Paul wrote it for you. But uh, let's just say for, uh, for now, we'll, we'll cover that a little bit, but Paul wrote it, okay? Uh, and now, first of all, First and Second Timothy and Titus are not pastoral epistles. Everybody refers to them as the pastoral epistles because some crackhead in 1706 called them the pastoral epistles. Uh, but here's the problem, and by the way, Warning, this is a professor pet peeve. So don't refer to them as, you know, especially if you're taking it for credit. You want a good grade, right? So um, uh, that's like uh, a very annoying thing to me. It's one, just one of those, you know, some things just get under your crawl. It's not really a big deal and you shouldn't be that upset about it, but I am. 
<laughs> Why? Because uh, it's not written by a pastor. Paul was not a pastor. He was an apostle. And it was not written to a pastor. Neither uh, Timothy nor Titus were pastors. Um, it was written by an apostle to two young evangelists who were like sons to him. That's who, that's who wrote it. That's his. So, uh, you know, if anything, it's the evangelist epistles because that's what they were. But uh, I don't I just call them 1st, 2nd Timothy, and Titus. It's not that long. You don't have to come up with another name. Um, but uh, suffice to say, 1st and 2nd Timothy are not pastoral epistles. Did I mention that? Uh, they, that's not what they are, okay? So, um, so it's, uh, it's about these leadership roles. And before we talk about evangelists and pastors and all that, I want you to understand where the leadership roles come from. Ephesians chapter 4 tells us, so Christ himself, who? Christ himself gave some to be apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. The positions, they're listed here. Now, I put a hyphen here. Uh, some translations put an and, but the way that's written in Greek, um, from what I've read, I'm no Greek scholar, but from what I've read from others, the way it's written in Greek, this should be hyphenated. It's, it's one thing, a pastor-teacher. In other words, pastors are supposed to be teaching. In fact, one of the qualifications for a pastor is that, in fact, they are apt to teach. They're likely to teach. If you're not likely to teach, you shouldn't be a pastor-teacher. Um, so these are the positions. Pastor-teachers is not what Timothy is. It's not written to a pastor. Now, are there things about pastors in it? Yeah, but it's about Timothy and his interactions with the pastors, not written to pastors. Timothy is an evangelist. But who gave these leadership positions? Christ. He ordained it. This isn't some small thing. This isn't a descriptive. No, this is he gave these leadership positions. If you go back and look at the context here, it's saying that Christ was victorious over Satan and over evil and over death, and he came up out of the grave, and he victoriously went into heaven. And back then, when a guy had won in battle, he would go back to wherever he was from, wherever he came from. And let's say uh, uh, he was from Rome, and he went and defeated um, Greece. And he would come back from Greece and winning the battle, and he'd come back into Rome and have a parade. And when he gave, came in for the parade, he would take spoils from the war that he took from the Greeks and throw them out. They didn't throw candy at parades. They threw gold and silver. And because they threw some of the spoils to the people in a parade, the people were very supportive of the wars. Oh, yes. Thank you. Look, I just got jewelry from some Greek dead woman that the soldier ripped off of her. Now I get it. Woohoo! Uh, and so this says that Christ was in this triumphal procession, and he gave out gifts. And the gift that he gives his church after he conquers evil and death and Satan and sin itself, after he conquers it, the gift he gives to his church is apostles, prophets, evangelists, and pastor teachers. The leadership positions are a gift from Christ to the church. And we treat it like, oh, well, whatever. We got it right or not. I don't know. who We call him whatever, do whatever, follow whatever, you know, whatever. He gives us a gift, and we're like, you know, who cares? It's a gift. Well, Kendall, what does this 
gift given? What, what, what's the benefits of this gift? What's, what's the result? Well, look at verse 12. To equip his people for works of service, this could be translated ministry. It's the same word that's translated ministry elsewhere. For works of service or of ministry so that the body of Christ may be built up. Turns out that the ministers in the church are not supposed to be doing all the ministry. <laughs> Turns out the job of the preacher and the elder and apostles and prophets when they gave the Scriptures was to equip you to minister. You should have a ministry. You should have a way that you are serving this community and the church. You should be equipped to serve others for Christ, and that's your job. Ultimate job for those of you in ministry, ultimate job for those of you in eldership, is to equip the people of your church to go out and minister to one another and to the community. And if that's not what you're accomplishing, you are failing. And if that's not your, your role, your job description, the main gist of it. That, that's one thing that elders and evangelists and apostles and prophets, they all have in common, is ultimately their job. Now, they do it different ways. They have different ways of, of getting people there, different emphases of, of their work. But the main thing is to equip people for works of ministry. It's just like in a baseball, you know, that no matter what position you play, when it's time to get up to bat, the, the idea is to get get runners through, and gets points. And when you're playing defense and you're in the outfield, one guy might be right field, one might be left field, one center field, one first, second base, you know, pitcher, catcher. But all of them, all of them have the same objective. Don't let one of the other team get across home plate. That's the objective. Now, how they do it and how they, the role they play might be different. What the pitcher and the catcher does is very different. But they have the same goal. Don't let the other team get somebody across home plate. And we all in leadership have the same goal, and that is to equip people for works of ministry. Why? What happens when people are equipped for ministry? Well, then the body of Christ gets built up. We start taking the bricks. We're all in all, we're just another brick in the wall, and we start putting them together. We're building them on the foundation. And we build together, and the puzzle pieces come together, and it creates something beautiful the house of God, that serves the community, that ministers to the community and ministers to the people. That's what happens. Look what it says, verse 13, until we all reach unity in the faith, we're unified, we're working as one organism. We're unity in the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature. Spiritual maturity is the result, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. I submit to you that until the church has good functioning elders, evangelists, and then, of course, deacons, it's not matured. A mature church has a functioning biblical leadership that comes from Christ. You cannot produce strong, mature Christians the way God intends until you mature to the point where you have these leadership positions in place. If your church does not have elders, it should be a big priority. If you don't have an evangelist, it should be a big priority. 
to get those two leadership positions into work because you need both of them for the church to mature. A bunch of elders without an evangelist isn't going to mature right. And an evangelist without elders isn't going to mature right long term. Now, short term, it might be a necessity. Every early church that was ever started was started by an evangelist or by an apostle, and it didn't have elders for years until they finally had men who were qualified. It's better to have no elders than unqualified ones. But that should be the goal is to get some qualified men into place where you can have elders and evangelists in the church. That's what leads to spiritual maturity of the people. Where the people because no one evangelist can do everything himself. It's just impossible. You're going to reach a maximum level. You're not, one guy isn't going to be able to lead a church much over 100. He just can't. As long as one guy is trying to do all of the leadership ministry in the church, you're just 100, 120 tops. Because that's the limit of a human's ability to know and minister to people. You want you got to get elders, you got to get a bunch of other people serving. You got to get more people if you want to grow past that. And if your church peaks at that, it's because one guy's doing everything. And you've seen it, you've seen churches where the preacher has to do everything. And the elders are just glorified deacons. We have to re- repair biblical leadership because the result is the only way we can mature churches. Well, then what happens? Well, look at verse 14. Then we'll no longer be infants. Oh, well, thank goodness. Tossed back and forth by the waves, blown here and there by every wind of teaching, by the cunning and craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Do you know why false doctrine is such a problem in our churches? Because we're not mature. You know why we're not mature? Because we don't have biblical church leadership. And because we have abandoned the idea of biblical church leadership We have forsaken the blessing of spiritual maturity, and because we are immature and we have infantile Christians in churches that are mile wide and people are an inch deep, they're they're a sucker for every new false doctrine and heresy and goofy thing that comes along and every Christian, quote, quote, fad that happens and every new, you know, oh, the shack book is so good. Yes, let's read the shack. And it's full of blasphemy and false doctrine, but okay. Or, you know, let's all be promise keepers. Or, you know, whatever the next fad is, you know. Let's do 40 days of purpose. Full of Calvinism, but oh well. (laughs) Who cares? We're immature and don't know. And there's no shepherds guarding the flock from the false doctrine. There's no preacher standing up and teaching the truth and training. It's not there. It's not happening. And so whatever the latest flavor of the month false doctrine is, okay, you know, hook, line, and sinker. Off they go. They're blown here and there by every wind of teaching. When one preacher's here, the church leans one way, and the other preacher comes, and the church leans another way. And, and the church goes flip flitty floppity flippity floppity waffling all around. Nobody knows what the doctrine is because nobody's taking a stand because there's no leaders. Instead, when you've got this good leadership, the members will be mature and they'll be speaking the truth in love and we'll grow and become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head that is Christ. See, we'll grow, we'll enlarge, we'll reach more people, we'll grow spiritually, we'll be connected, we'll be unified, and the body will be built up and become mature with Christ as the head. Christ cannot be the head of a church when he gives evangelists and pastor teachers and we reject that idea. We cannot reject Christ-given leadership 
and then have Christ as the head of our church. It is possible to be Christian in name only. There's benefits to biblical church leadership. Each church needs the teaching of apostles and prophets, right? We all need the Scriptures. That's what the 27 books of the New Testament are. We need the teaching of the apostles and prophets. We need the Bible. And we need the evangelists and pastor teachers to teach it. To teach this doctrine, to equip each church member to do ministry so the church can be mature, so the church can be protected, and so the church can grow with Christ as the head. So how important is it that we understand First and Second Timothy and Titus? Pretty important. These are not just backwater incidental uh, letters. Every bit of Scripture is useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness so the man of God might be thoroughly equipped for every good work. At least that's what Paul tells Timothy here in a little bit. And so it is very important for us to understand the biblical role of an evangelist, the biblical role of an elder, and so on. Well, who are these pastor teachers? Who are the pastors? The word translated as pastor comes from a Greek word, poimen, meaning a shepherd, a herdsman, one who cares for sheep. That's from Strong's Greek Dictionary. Um, the word originally just meant shepherd. Pastor means shepherd. Shepherd means pastor. It's, um, they couldn't pronounce poimen, so they pastor. I don't know how they got poimen. I don't know. I still can't figure out George to Jorge, but, uh, you know, whatever. Uh, you know, I've never figured out how languages, that names and weird things and everything gets miscombobulated. Although, have you ever tried to, like, speak some Eastern European pronunciations? You know, Popkovich, you know, I can't do it. But, or try speaking Hebrew, you know. It sounds like you're gargling and speaking Klingon at the same time. The, um, the languages are hard, difficult. So words get, words get messed around. So somehow, Poimain became pastor. But it just means shepherd. I wish that we could take the word pastor and flush it down the drain and never hear of it again. Because it causes so much confusion and it's annoying. When I was a kid, um, it was preacher or minister. And if you were denominational, it was reverend. Reverend. Which, of course, we won't even get into. But the word pastor has become more and more and more popular over the last 50 years. To now, everybody calls the preacher in the church the pastor. Are you the pastor here? How many times have I had that asked to me? People are, I've done, are you, are you the pa pastor, Kendall? Oh, just call me Kendall. I don't go into a long thing with guests or a church about how I'm not the pastor. I don't want to lose them over some minor thing like that at that point. And it is a minor thing to have the name wrong. Not that big of a deal. You can still go to heaven and not understand it. Okay? It's not an essential doctrine to the faith. If you call the, the preacher pastor, you're not going to hell. But you are very confused. And if everybody in the church feels that way, you're not going to have biblical church leadership because you're using the term for the wrong position. Is pastor a biblical term? Yeah, well, shepherd is. Boy, main. I, I guess we can use the old English term pastor if we want. 
Although it, to me, it sounds like where you put an old horse out to. But um, the, the pastor or shepherd, the, the term most of the time in the Bible refers to a shepherd. In fact, you should always, if you read through the Bible in Greek and you come to the word poimain, you should assume it's talking about a guy who takes care of sheep unless the context absolutely demands that you consider it a, a, a leader a term for a spiritual leader. Unless they, most of the time this word is used in the New Testament, it's talking about, like uh, it was just Christmas, right? Remember the angels appeared to the shepherds in the hills at night, right? Pastors, Poimain, they appeared to the Poimain. That, that word is, it's usually talking about guys who watch sheep. But every once in a while, it's talking about a church leadership position. Me personally, I prefer the term shepherd, and I wish they only used the term shepherd. Sometimes they translate it shepherd. Sometimes they translate it pastor. And I just want to wring the necks of the uh, translators. It's, I, I would just put shepherd. In fact, if I wouldn't call the elders of your church the pastors, even though that's technically correct, because you're going to confuse the snot out of visitors. If you like the concept of not calling them elders, of calling them another name, call them shepherds. That's the literal translation. So, am I a shepherd? No. I don't even meet the qualifications. I'm not even married. I don't meet the qualifications. I can't be a pastor. You know, we got this. It just blows me away. We'll have a a 21-year-old kid right out of Bible college who's not even married. Oh, this is our youth pastor. He doesn't fit the qualification. We, we, we make fun of the, the Mormons because they got these little kids in the, the white shirts with the ties riding up on their bikes with a little tag, you know, uh, you know, Billy, Mormon elder. <laughs> he's like 21, you know, he's like 19 years old. Hi, I'm a Mormon elder. And says, well, it's nice peach fuzz there, elder. Uh, you understand elder means elderly man, right? Um, we, we joke about Mormon elders, but then we'll have youth pastors. That makes no sense. It's like an oxymoron. Uh, you, can't ha- you don't have a youth older person. That's 21. The, the pastor is just a shepherd, but it's not talking about the evangelist, it's talking about the elders. Now, there's three terms used interchangeably for one office, and I'm going to prove that in a second. Give me a minute. But I want to talk about the names. The one is elders. It's descriptive qualification. you got to be older. Turns out 21 does not qualify you for being an elder. I mean, <laughs> you need to be older. You need to be married, and you need to have children that are grown and that prove that they're faithful to you and are good children. you got to prove you're a good dad. One of the qualifications for being an elder is having a wife, having kids, and being good at it. Hey, one out of three ain't bad. Um, Overseers is the other term. Also translated sometimes bishops. Well, where's the term bishop come from? Well, it comes from the Greek term episkopos, that the British could not pronounce and somehow turned episkopos into bishop. 
Don't ask me how Episcopos becomes bishop. I don't know. Tomato, tomato, potato, potato, Episcopos bishop. But it's descriptive of the role. An overseer is a person who oversees by visitation. It literally means to visit over. An overseer is a person who goes and visits people. That's why they have to be given to hospitality, and that's why they have to be teachers, and that's why they have to be counselors and people persons. Because an elder or an overseer is a leader of people not programs. And we'll get to that more in the future. And then they're shepherds. This is descriptive of their role. So these three terms, elders, which is the term we use a lot in the Christian church, in the church of Christ, and overseers, which is a term we use sometimes, and we try to avoid the term bishop because the Catholics hijacked it and turned it into something it's not. And then Shepherds, which I like, and I try to avoid the term pastors because the denominationalists hijacked it and turned it into something it's not. So for me, I like the translation better than a transliteration. What? Translation is when you take a word and you translate it into another language. For example, poimain, shepherd. Transliteration is when you take a word and you try to pronounce it sounding in English. In other words, poimain, pastor, episcopos, bishop. I like to avoid transliterations, uh, and I like to go straight to translations so we know what it actually says in the original language. Because the term overseer is a lot more descriptive than the term bishop, and the term shepherd is a lot better in understanding than the term pastor. Immersion instead of baptism is, is, is superior. You are correct. Um, so, the title used exclusively for one office in the Bible. In the Bible, pastor is never used for any other leadership position other than the elders. And in the Old Testament, too, by the way, the elders of Israel were called shepherds. We just read that in the book of Ezekiel. It's also in the book of Jeremiah. So the concept of the elders being the pastors and the pastors being the elders is not just a New Testament concept. It goes all the way back to the Old Testament. So Acts 20. Apostle Paul is talking to the elders in chapter 20 and verse 7, uh, no, no, verse um, 17, thank you. In Acts 20, 17, he says that he called the Ephesian elders down to Miletus to meet with him. So he's talking to the elders at Ephesus, and he says, keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. He's he calls in what the, he, the Bible called the elders, and then he calls them overseers, and he calls them shepherds, pastors. See how the terms are used interchangeably? The elders are the overseers. The elders are the shepherds or the pastors. The pastor in the church is not the preacher. It's the elders. That's why these are not pastoral epistles. Now, look, here's another example. Three terms used for one position. This is 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 12. To the elders among you, who's he talking to? The elders. I appeal to you as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's suffering and one who will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that are under your care, serving as overseers. 
So the elders of the church are to shepherd the people and oversee the people. An elder's job is to lead the spiritual lives of people. Not figure out what lawnmower to buy for the church. Not to decide how much to spend on the new uh, carpet. Not to uh, micromanage the other leaders of the church. Not to mess with the physical stuff of the church. That's not the job of elders. Their job is not to administrate programs. Their job is to pastor people. Period. End of sentence. And all of the physical and evangelistic and uh, administrative duties of the church, they are to delegate away to the, the evangelist and or the deacons. That's why they lay hands on a guy and make him an evangelist. Because that's not their job, and they delegate that responsibility. And elders who micromanage those things are lording it over the house of God, which Peter here goes on to tell them not to do. And that's part of the problem, is we have elders who aren't looking after the spiritual lives of the people of the church or guarding the doctrine of the flock or leading them to green pastures or binding up the sick and the wounded or going after the lost sheep that aren't coming to church anymore or carrying them back on their shoulders or loving people through marriage problems or problems with their kids or depression or doctrinal inerrancy or, or uh, some some goofy thing they've got caught up in or, or bringing them back or helping them overcome an addiction. They're not helping ministering to people. They're micromanaging programs that they're supposed to have delegated away. And then we're putting all of that pastoral work on who? The preacher. And then he can't do his job. The preacher didn't visit me in the hospital when I was sick. <laughs> I'm going to another church. Man, you get a church of 200, 300 people, you try to go visit everybody that's sick. That's all you do. That's why you have multiple. Who are you supposed to call when you're sick? Not Ghostbusters. Don't say it. You wanted to say it. You didn't do it. Good. But don't say it. Who are you, spo who are you supposed to call? But James, what does James say to call when you're sick? Call the elders. That's who you're supposed to. Now, am I saying as a preacher I won't go visit somebody at the hospital? No, I do. But not because it's my job, but because I love them. I'm a Christian. But it's not my job. That's not my job description. Uh, that's not my ministry. That's the elder's ministry is to shepherd people and to pray for people and to pray for the sick and to pray for the sinners and encourage people and that to teach to be involved in people's lives, to have people in their homes and be hospitable. That's an elder's job. To be the shepherds. But it's not Timothy and Titus's job. It's not their job to be shepherds. They're not shepherds. They're evangelists. And those two positions are different. They have some same goals to equip the saints for ministry so they'll be mature, and attain to the full measure of the fullness of Christ. But it is not the same job any more than the pitcher and the catcher have the same job. They have the same goal, but not the same job. And there's three terms used interchangeably for elders, and we need to follow. Now, some facts about pastors real quick. 
Um, there were always multiple shepherds. Um, never just one elder per church. You don't ever see, and Paul and Barnabas went and ordained elder. <laughs> never happens. There's always multiple elders. Why? Because the elders, as overseers of the church, are, are given so much authority that no one man should hold all that authority. And I would never, I, I've got, I, I'm, in a, I'm in a little church right now, and we don't have elders. We did, but uh, one of the elders' wives passed away, and he went off the mission field, and another elder moved from his job and went to another church, and now only had one, so he resigned and stepped down. I've got one guy qualified to be an elder. Um, I'm working on another guy to get him there, but I don't have elders right now because I won't have one guy be an elder. Now, is he still shepherding people, the one guy that was qualified? Yeah. Because whether he's an elder or not, he's going to be out serving people. That's what he does. But you don't put in an eldership and give all this authority to one dude. You are asking for, you know, absolute power corrupts absolutely. It's like the one ring in Lord of the Rings, all right? Though he would take that authority of elder all by himself and through, with a desire to do good, through him evil would come. You can't give anybody, uh, our own government, we figured that out finally. Don't give one person all the power. They have these people make the laws, these people enforce the laws, and these people be the judges of whether they're doing it right. We divided it up, and then we limited it, or at least we used to, um, to try to maintain, so no one person could have all the power. You give one person all the power. I don't care if you are an awesome man after God's own heart. If you're given absolute authority and you become a dictator, next thing you know, you're on your roof, lusting half your neighbor's wife, sending him off to the front lines, getting him killed and getting her pregnant. A la King David. A guy after God's own heart gets corrupted by all that power. Nobody can handle absolute power except one. There's one Lord of the Ring and he doesn't share power. And there's one God, and it's not you. And nobody should have all the power in a church. And even at a church where an there's an evangelist, he shouldn't have all the power. And he should be answered. There should be, never be a situation where one person is unaccountable to anybody else. Everybody should be accountable to somebody. That's a biblical concept. And anywhere you got somebody not accountable to somebody, you're going to have trouble. It's human nature. So there's always multiple elders. Well, why do you only do that? Because that was their practice. Was it their sole pattern to only have multiple elders? So am I commanded to follow their pattern? So am I going to put just one guy in as elder? No. In fact, I probably wouldn't even put just two guys in an elder if they were related. You know, this father-son-in-law thing, no thanks. No nepotism. An overseer's authority was always local, not regional or universal. Overseers, shepherds, elders, they were over a local church. Notice uh, Titus didn't go down there to ordain elders over the whole island of Crete. He goes to Crete and he puts elders in each city. Today, there's something called franchising, where uh, big megachurch guys, they grow church really big, and they, they become very influential, and they, they want to go start another church in the next town down the road, 30 minutes down the road. But there's just nobody that can preach quite as good as them, so they have to pipe themselves in on satellite uh, through uh, video feed there and not have a live preacher there. And then that church, the new church plants under their eldership. 
well, how are elders in a city 45 minutes away going to shepherd anybody? For You understand what I'm saying? And I remember I went to a church planning conference in the year 2000. I know that seems like forever ago, but it really wasn't that long ago. But uh, in the year 2000, in the year 2000. Anyway, I go to this church planning conference in Chicago, and I'm in Chicago at the church planning conference, and the guy gets up and explains this. He's like, you know, people won't go if they're driving down the road across the country and there's a little mom and pop restaurant there and there's a McDonald's, they'll choose the McDonald's even though they figure the mom and pop place may be better or it may not. But they go to McDonald's because they know what they're getting. And so if we just make these little cookie cutter churches that are all following after uh, the same thing and under the same leadership, people go to, they call it franchising. And I went up to the dude afterwards and I'm like, are you serious about this? He's like, yes, this is great. And I'm like, Congratulations. After 200 years in the Christian church, we just reinvented the denomination. Just little mini ones. And you got these big mega churches in these big cities, and they plant off all these satellite churches that are all under the control of Mother Church. Well, let me tell you a little thing that I heard when I was a kid. I don't know if maybe that wisdom has been forgotten, but it, it was an old saying that used to say, do not put all your eggs in one basket. Why? Because if you drop said basket, all your eggs are broke. And you don't put all your eggs in. And if you put all of your churches under one leadership and then put the lead pastor at the top of said church, then all that has to happen is that crackhead goes bad and the whole church is ruined. You want an example of that? Well, look at the ultimate example of that, the church up there in Chicago, uh, Willow Creek. And they did this very model, planted all these churches around Chicago, put them all under Willow Creek, and then turns out the pastor uh, was sleeping with all these women and doing all these moral things and gets caught and, gets, and ruins the whole thing. And the whole thing, whoosh, where if they went and set up independent churches, they were independent and had their own independent leadership, when the big church that planted them went bad, the other ones would have been fine. Don't reinvent the denomination. Keep authority local. The only overreaching authority in the kingdom of Christ is Jesus himself. And all church leadership should be local. Local leaders. And there was never a lead pastor, a chairman of the elders, or a chief overseer. Or the first among equals, the pope. None of that is biblical. In fact, it's anti-biblical. It goes against everything Jesus said about leadership and that the greatest is the servant. And he said, in my church, you are not to lord it over one another. In hierarchies, anytime there's a pyramid structure, it's unbiblical. If you go to a church and you've got a pyramid leadership structure with somebody at the top or a couple dudes at the top, unbiblical. Pyramids are unbiblical in leadership structure. It is not a biblical concept. And Jesus is the chief shepherd, 1 Peter 5, 4, nobody else. There's one Lord, and it isn't you. And the church isn't yours. And the money isn't the, chair, the chairman of the elders, and it doesn't belong to the treasurer. It belongs to Jesus Christ. And the mission and the work is yours. It's not your church. It's Christ's church. 
belongs to him. And it's his, not ours. So what is an evangelist? We talked about what a pastor is. What's an evangelist? The word for the New Testament translated is evangelist is the Greek word evangelieseto. Sorry, let me see if I can say that again. Evangelieseto. There, I got it. I said it with an Apache accent. It helps me to do my Greek to use my Apache accent. It means preacher of the good news. I just happened to notice that my Greek professor, when he would talk, sounded to me like Apaches when they would talk. But anyway, um, the, it means preacher of the good news. That's what evangelist means. So uh, another term for evangelist is preacher. That's a, that would be just as biblical, more biblical than pastor or bishop. Preacher of the good news is what evangelist is. Now, um, when I was in my first ministry, I had a guy come up to me at the church I was at, and he's like, evangelists come into town, and they preach, and they start a church, and get a church going, and they ordain elders, and then they go to the next town, and once you've got elders, you don't need an evangelist anymore. And some people still teach that. And I'm going to show you that's not true. I'm going to show you that that, that now, if you had a superficial reading of the New Testament, I could see how you would think that because the evangelists moved around a bit. Timothy and Titus, they got around. But that was out of necessity because there weren't many of them. But let me show you an example. Acts chapter 40, excuse me, Acts chapter 8, there is no Acts 40. Acts chapter 8, verse 40, it says this. Philip, however, appeared at Astos and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns till he reached Caesarea. So, Philip had went up to Samaria. He started a revival. Woo! And all these people got baptized, and they needed the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They needed prophets. So Peter and John go up, and they lay hands on some of them, give them the miraculous gifts. Uh, he's doing good. He's like, oh, I think I'll be a Samaritan minister. <laughs> got my Samaritan ministry. And then the Lord says, the Holy Spirit comes and says, nope, go down here. So he goes down. He goes south. Jerusalem. He gets on the road to Egypt, going down through the, what's now what we call the Gaza Strip, the road to Gaza. He's going along. There's this African dude, this black guy in a fancy, you know, I'm not a fancy chariot. He was the treasurer for Queen Cadence. You know, he's in a sweet ride. I don't want you to picture like, I don't want you to picture a chariot like, you know, Charlton Heston, you know, racing, not a racing chariot. I'm, I'm talking about this. He's in a nice, you know, hauled by several horses cart. He's riding along and he's reading from the prophet Isaiah. I guess it would be like this. They had scrolls. And so he's reading from the, the prophet Isaiah from Isaiah 53, and he doesn't know what he's reading. And he runs up alongside, you understand what you're reading? How can I, unless somebody tells me? He says, well, come on up in. I'll tell. And so he goes, and he converts this black guy, and the black guy gets baptized, and, and then the Holy Spirit leads him away. Where to now? Well, it tells us. He, he went to Astos, he traveled around. He's preaching the gospel here, he's preaching the gospel there. And then he gets to Caesarea, and that's where the Lord calls him to. And he starts a church at Caesarea, and he becomes the evangelist at Caesarea. We read about it chapters later. This is Acts chapter 21, verse 8. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip the evangelist. Now, Philip, when he first started in ministry, what was his job? He was a deacon. He was one of the seven. He was one of the original deacons overseeing. So he got his start in ministry by doing benevolence. And then 
he went from that, being a deacon, into being an evangelist, to being a preacher. He preaches around, starts a church, and now he's an evangelist. There's at least a 20-year time period between Acts 8 and Acts 21. He had at least a 20-year ministry. My brother Jeff went to Mooresville to the Mount Gilead Church in 1988. And he's still there. And the church was 200, 250 when he went there. Now they're over 2,000. I've noticed something. Churches that have evangelists that stay for a while, I mean a good long while, and elderships that rotate in and out, grow big and healthy. But churches where the same two guys are elders for 20 years and they go through a new preacher every three years, never grow. Just something I've noticed over the years. And one of the biggest problems is in the Christian churches, the average minister doesn't even stay two years in a church. If you've had a preacher over two years, you're way ahead of the curve. And that's a sad thing. Because we hire this guy in to do everything that he can't do. We hire him in to do the elder's job, the deacon's job, and the evangelist's job, and the job of everybody else in the church, and to preach good sermons, and to shake everybody's hand, and never make anybody mad. And then when he doesn't meet the outrageous demands that we place upon him, we get mad at him because he offended Aunt Gertrude, who's my relative, second removed, and we run him out of town, and we hire some new guy, and the church never grows, and there's just constant friction and division and because we're not following the biblical pattern. And so there can't be any healthy growth. And healthy growth requires a maturity, which requires stability with evangelists and elders. And when there's instability in there, you're not going to have long-term growth. This is not going to happen. Sorry about your luck, but you're defying Christ who gave the leadership positions it's not going to work. Now, I'm not saying that every ministry from an evangelist has to be 20 years. That's certainly not the case. Uh, some of Timothy and Titus's were just uh, three or four years. I'm not saying every evangelist has to have a 20-year ministry. I'm just saying that unity and stability in that position leads to growth. And they were located. And as we'll see, if a church didn't have an evangelist and needed one, it would need one, and Paul would send him one. When a church was without an evangelist, Paul made sure that the position got filled because a church needs elders and evangelists. Um, evangelists have authority. It's a position of authority, and this is something that I'm going to emphasize in here because um, today evangelists are often seen as the lackey of the elders, that they have to do whatever the elders say. And that's not the biblical view. There's a mutual accountability between elders and evangelists in the Bible. In fact, in the Bible, we'll see elders ordain evangelists and evangelists ordain elders. Elders don't ordain elders. That's not biblical. In the Bible, evangelists ordain elders or apostles. And, and elders ordain evangelists. Apostle Paul didn't even ordain Timothy. He, gave, he laid hands on him and gave him the miraculous gift of prophecy, but he couldn't make him an evangelist. The elders had to do that. Paul couldn't make Timothy an evangelist. The elders had to make Timothy an evangelist. 
<laughs> and uh, Timothy must, uh, look what it says. Do not neglect the gift which was given to you through prophecy. The body of the elders laid their hands on you. Who made him an evangelist? Who gave him this gift? Who gave him this authority? The elders. And uh, when we get to ordination and the qualifications of elders here in a couple chapters in Timothy, when we get to the elder qualifications part, I'm going to give you a whole thing about ordination, and you're going to get the history of ordination all the way back to the Old Testament, and you're going to understand the importance of laying on hands and what it means and what it doesn't mean. I'll, we'll get to that. 2 Timothy 4, 5, but you be watchful in all things, endure affliction, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. So what was his ministry, according to the Apostle Paul? He was a what? Evangelist. He was not a pastor. He was a young guy, unmarried, uh, sickly, kind of timid. His name even means timidity. And God, he keep, Paul he has to keep telling him to man up and be brave and be courageous and have some backbone and th- have some authority and uh, stand up to these guys, rebuke these guys, silence these guys. He's having to tell this young kid, hey, you have authority. Same thing with Titus. Look what he says. These then are the things you should teach. Encourage and rebuke with how much authority? All authority. Do not let anyone despise you. Look, when you are teaching the Word of God, nobody has the right to tell you to shut up. The elders don't have the right to tell you don't teach that if it's in the Word of God. Nobody has the right to shut you up when you're doing God's work. Nobody. And it's a position of authority. So what is an evangelist do? Well, that's exactly what these three letters are going to teach us. First and second Timothy and Titus are instruction letters on how to carry out the ministry of evangelists. These are, if you're going to be a preacher in a church, you need to know these books. You need to understand them. You understand what to teach you. Because this is your job description. These are your marching orders. These are the things you need to pay attention to. Now, there's going to be all kinds of people trying to get you to pay attention to other things, trying to get you to focus on this ministry or that ministry or, or the, go call on this person in the hospital or marriage counseling here or doing this or doing that. All, they got all these ideas of what the preacher's supposed to do. But what you better figure out is what God tells you to do through the inspired apostle. You need to make sure that the foundation you're building on is the foundation of the apostles and prophets, which is based on the chief cornerstone, Christ. Because it's Christ who gave you to be an evangelist. You're supposed to be a gift to the church. And you're not going to be a gift if you're not doing your job description. And so if a preacher wants to know, what, or if you want to know, what should my preacher be doing? What are we paying this guy for? He only works one day a week. I wish that was true. (laughs) Look at 1st, 2nd Timothy and find out. Then you'll know. Okay? And so, how much time do I got? Uh, I can do a little bit more. (laughs) Let's start start into the book. Okay? 1st Timothy. Who wrote the book of Timothy? (laughs) Well, it says right here, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the command of God our Savior and Christ Jesus our hope, to Timothy, my true son in faith, grace and mercy and peace from God the Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. I always point out what Mid Hokey, one of the elders at Oak Forest Church of Christ, used to say. He always pointed out that, uh, that uh, um, <laughs> this 
Grace comes before truth. Grace comes before mercy. Grace comes before peace. Before you can have any of those other blessings, you have to have grace. It's the grease of every relationship, both between God and man and between man and man. And if you're going to have peace and truth and love and hope and all those other things, you've got to have grace for each other. Because it turns out no church is perfect. And if you find a perfect church, please don't join. It'll ruin it. Uh, and, and no preacher is perfect, especially this one. And uh, I always tell the people at my church, you got to have grace for me and i got to have grace for you because we're going to offend each other. That's just how it is. So he says, my true son in the faith, he's talking to Timothy. Now, some people, especially back in the 19th century, it's not as common anymore. Most people accept the Pauline authorship of 1st, 2nd Timothy and Titus now. But at once upon a time, it was in vogue and cool to deny the authorship of books and pretend like who said the Bible said wrote it didn't write it. Well, why would they do that? Why would they say that, that Paul wasn't the author? Well, because they don't want to accept what's in it. That's why. And because there was a whole movement in the late 19th century and early 20th century to deny the authorship of the Bible, to listen to Charles Darwin, and to become uh, pseudo-atheists. So why do some deny it? Well, they ignore the testimony of the early church who received the Bible from the apostles and prophets. Look, you can't say... Well, uh, yeah, we know that Romans was written by Paul because he gave it to the uh, second generation of Christians who uh, said he wrote it. But we don't think he wrote 2 Timothy and 1 Timothy, even though the same people gave us those books and said he wrote them too. That makes no sense. If your authority for one book is, well, the people said he wrote it, well, then it's true for all of them. Look, the books didn't come out of, uh, you know, nowhere. They were handed to people. We know who those people were. They wrote, yeah, Paul gave me this book. He wrote this. And we have history. We have early church fathers. You can read it. They wrote all about it. Within the first hundred years, they quote all but 11 verses of the New Testament. This whole idea that, yeah, Constantine in 300 A.D. added to the Bible and changed it. Oh, you got to be stuck on stupid. The, first, the second century Christians all quoted it long before Constantine ever came along. The New Testament was written in the first century by the apostles and prophets. If you don't want to believe it, that's on you. But don't tell me they didn't write it because they did. It's historical established fact. In fact, it's the most reliable ancient document we have. Like the uh, Titus's history or, or some of these other Roman histories. We'll have six or seven copies, and the, the closest to the time of authorship will be 1,000 years, 800 years, 700 years separated. The New Testament, we have thousands of copies that have whole, the whole New Testament within like 150, 200 years of authorship. We have fragments that go back to the time of authorship. In fact, we have a fragment of Mark that might be the original from the early 50s A.D., so, you know, this idea that the New Testament's been changed, it's just silliness. So when you study it, it's just silliness. Read the canon by F.F. F. Bruce, you'll understand what I'm talking about. They ignored the fact that later letters used by scribes to dictate letters, which explains the unique wording. One of their complaints is, well, Paul uses words in here that he doesn't use in any other of his, in his books. Really? You mean when he wrote a personal letter to guys that were like a son to him, he talked different than when he wrote, uh, say, a 
you know, long, massive letter to the church at Rome? You mean he talked different to his best friends than he did to an entire congregation? Really? Of course the words are different. And also, especially in the later years, like 2 Timothy was the last thing he ever wrote. He writes it right before he dies. He even says so in the book. He used scribes. He was using scribes. And he says he uses scribes. So we know that Paul would dictate to people, and they might, you know, fix his grammar or whatever. And there's, there's many reasons why there might be unique wording. But there's nothing he says that's outside of his doctrine or his personality. In fact, everything he says in here fits very well with who he is and who he was and what he said about Timothy and Titus in other places. Uh, they ignored the personal nature of his letters. That's why the letters are a little bit different in how they're, they're very personal. I mean, he talks about them like they're his own sons. Very personal letters. And they ignore the overwhelming historical evidence that Paul got out of jail after the end of Acts and went on a fourth missionary journey not recorded in Acts, which explains the various geographic incongruities with the earlier Acts timeline. So they'll say, well, the places he went and the things he talks about don't match with his missionary journeys in Acts. I know, because he got out of jail. Now, it was Roman law that they had two years to bring you to trial and if they didn't bring you to trial in two years, what you're free. I mean, um, in our own constitution, uh, there's a thing where they can't hold you indefinitely. They have, you have a right to a speedy trial. Remember that in the constitution? Rome had it too for Roman citizens. Was Paul a Roman citizen? Did he have a right to a speedy trial? How did the Romans define a speedy trial? You had two years. Do you think the Jews who had no case, no witnesses, conflicting evidence, who couldn't get a conviction in front of Agrippa, do you think they were going to go risk their own neck standing before Caesar himself and give no good evidence and just say we arrested the guy because we didn't like him? Because we didn't like his religion? Caesar would have punished them. There's no way those Jews were going to go to court. Paul sat there. His accusers never showed up. Two years passed, and they said, out of jail, buddy. And that's what happened. Now, what did he say he wanted to do after he, after he went to Rome, when he wrote to the Romans, where did he say he wanted to go? Spain. And where does the, sec, the first generation of Christians who wrote in the 90s, in the early uh, um, 100s AD, where do they say Paul went after he got out of jail? They say he went to Spain. He did exactly what he said he was going to do. He visited Rome, and he went to Spain. And then he went back and traveled around some more. That's when he went to Crete. Remember, uh, um, Barnabas and um, John Mark went to Crete, and now he went back and visited these churches that his friends had started. And that's where probably he reignited his friendship with John Mark and rebuilt that relationship so that when he's in his last letter, we're going to see he wants John Mark to come to him because he meets up with him again on Crete. And that's why he sends Titus to Crete because they need an evangelist in Crete. And so these things where it says, well, Paul never went there in his journeys. That's because he got out of jail in the early 60s, went to Spain, went back around a trip again, got back to Rome, and this time he gets arrested again, and Nero, 67, 68 AD, beheads him. Now they'll say, no, we don't know. We don't know that uh, he, the Bible doesn't say he went on this other journey, so we're not for sure. And uh, it says there at the end of Acts he was in Rome, 
And we know he was beheaded. And then you just ask him, well, how do we know he was beheaded? Does it say that in Acts? No. No, the early Christians say that. Really? Who? Oh, the same guys that say he went to Spain and on a fourth missionary journey. (laughs) So if you're going to believe that Nero beheaded Paul, you've got to believe he went to Spain. Because it's the same people. So, that's why there's lots of unexplained references in these later books about journeys that we don't read in the book of Acts because there were events that happened between Acts and between these books that are not recorded. But history records them, and that's how we know what happened. So, who was it uh, written to? Well, it was, well, I think I'm out of time, right? Okay, Acts 16.1, help me remember, this is where I'm starting next week. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for the time we've had tonight. Thank you for all that we've learned. I pray that it'd stick. Um, I pray that you would help me to uh, uh, charge in through uh, chapter one next week and be able to get through all of chapter one next week. Um, I pray, God, that the lessons and the meat of this book uh, we could enjoy and uh, be be edified by. And I pray, God, it would give us... uh, uh, an exciting view into what a preacher's to do, but not only that, the things a preacher's to teach and what we as a church are to do. You give so many instructions for these evangelists to give to the church, to help the church to understand how to order itself. And I pray, God, that we would see the pattern that you have for the church and that we would put it into practice, that, um, <coughs> that we would hold to the, the traditions of the apostles just as they were passed on to us in Scripture. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. I love you guys. Take care. Wash your hands. It's a pandemic, you know.